0: Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Design Untangle uh, with me, uh, Chris Mears, as always, and myself, Carla Lindarte, here with Brendan. Kerns, is that how you pronounce your, your surname?
1: It sure
0: is. Okay, cool. So Brandon a is an amazing designer at Google. Um, you work, he works for uh, Search and Maps, which mm-hmm. is um, a Google we call Geo. And we're here because he's got an amazing uh, background and experience, and we want to hear more about him. So, um, hello, Chris, are you there? I am here. Yeah. So Chris is not with us in the room, so that's why it sounds a bit awkward, but um. Chris, um, do you want to say something? Do you want to say hello to me?
2: Hello, Brendan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
0: not to me. Okay. He's very (laughs) He's very rude. All right. um, So, Brendan, thank you very much for being with us today. Of course. Can you just tell us a a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into Google?
3: Sure. Um, So, I got all the way at the beginning. I was never interested in design. I was never, like, I didn't go to university for design. In fact, I I think after blagging my way through the last year of high school, I got into a not very good university. Um, and I did. Um, it was an okay university. It was just like the offshoot. You know, there's always the campus that the university has for people who can't get into the regular one. That was me.
1: Um,
3: like the caretaker shed. It, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like, get some okay grades here and you can come to the real school. Yeah. Um, but I, so I went to business school pretty much. I did um, a bit of a mixed degree of um, economics and there was technical aspects to it, but it was more around like digital economies and things like that. So I guess I was close to what we do today, but it was never something like the kind of product work that I do now. And I think I got, and mum's really proud of this, I got about six months shy of finishing my degree and just dropped out because I wanted to get a job. So Uh, after spending all that time in a mediocre school trying to get okay grades um, in something I wasn't too attracted to, I ditched it all to get a job that was basically in local government doing a huge web rebuild for a couple of years. So that was my first kind of exposure in this, I think, what you'd call like a producer role today. But I was able to do everything from working with um, creative agencies, dev shops, to kind of bring this project together. And it was still at the time, this was probably, what, 2007, 2008, mm. where not many people really knew what they were doing. Um, and so after the, like, that like learning curve, I got really interested in trying to work in more, like, digital shops, whether it be large agencies that had digital teams or big brands that were doing interesting stuff in, like, creative fields. And that was still quite generic to me. I was like, I want to do everything and nothing at the same time i wanted to learn from a lot of people and do some interesting work and this was still mainly like web work even if it was considered product it was still pretty broad um but of course i didn't have a great degree i didn't have um you know dnad show records i didn't have anything like that so everyone i applied for just said no because i didn't meet the requirements so i i spent a few years doing various contracts here and there mostly in-house product teams but where I was like the digital creative guy just in the corner and it was much of like Mm -hmm. an extension of these teams Mm -hmm. rather than being a central part of it um and I think that was probably the first few years of my career until I got into some pretty good um digital product agencies or user experience agencies in Melbourne Yeah. yeah where I was doing a lot more of that like transformational work even if it was smaller projects you had a larger remit and then when i initially thought about moving overseas i was going to go to the us and then i've got a british passport so i came here and i had every intention of you know being a nomad and freelancing and taking six months off after working on a huge project And then it just didn't happen. I ended up getting a job at Twitter and then Envision after that and now Google.
0: And that's kind of
3: how it happened. It wasn't all accident. It is like there is some planning and a sequence in there, but a lot of it has been serendipitous.
0: So what do you think that was the kind of the turning point where you obviously you came from not having a degree, which obviously that could worry a lot of people, especially if they're looking for a job. But
3: It did for me because it didn't work.
0: (laughs) But um, the... The turning point into, like, going and doing quite what you would call more basic work but learning lots to find a job at Twitter, you mm. know, which I think it was one of the biggest, you know, the, the first biggest brands that you work for, right?
3: I think, I think in the tech world, yeah. Um, I'd certainly worked with, like, airlines and banks and I'd okay. done a big stint at GE and, you know, there was large impactful work but it wasn't the tech scale that you would think of at the moment. Okay, yeah. Um, but that was definitely the one that, like, in Europe, gave me the bridge between the UK, or at least like the EU, and San Francisco
2: and Mm -hmm. the States. So were Twitter quite early days when you joined them, or had they been around for a few years? It was around for a while, actually. I think I joined just before the 10th anniversary.
3: So when I came in, funnily enough, Jack Dorsey had just been made permanent CEO. Um, There were actually a huge round of redundancies on my first week. And I think that kind of, it both helped and hindered how I landed in the company. The, the first thing was that I was the only designer outside of the U.S., mm. which sucked. And this is, I mean, Twitter, you think, it, it's still a, quite a large company, but when I was there, it was 4,000 people. Design team was maybe 100. Yeah. Then there was a round of redundancies, and that slowly went down to about 50.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I was the only one in Europe. So it was an interesting time to be there. There was certainly still the speed and the like caliber of work coming out of them but it was just still trying to find itself it was about two years shy of them ever earning their own their first profit they were still bringing in a few billion a year in revenue but that was churning through everything so there was this weird vibe there which is like we still want to explore and be true to the use cases we support but we need to turn this into a viable business mm. like 10 years is a long runway
0: yeah so what do you do at google now
3: um i'm still i'm still a designer regular kind of designer but i do a lot more product design and i guess to suit the environment here it's a lot more kind of strategic product design so i like to talk about operating at like two altitudes one is very high where you're playing the role of um, one of those legs on a three-legged stool that we talk about between product engineering and design and it depending on the makeup of the team uh, or what you're focusing on at any one time that can mean you're working really closely, trying to define a vision with a product manager,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and really trying to drive like, what is the user problem, who are you solving it for, and how you're going to know that you've done it well, um, all the way down to lower altitudes, which is like you can spend weeks arguing over specific interaction because you know it's going to go out to hundreds of millions of people. Yeah,
1: exactly.
3: Um, so it is still very much a designer role, but the levels here demand a different kind of strategic designer.
2: So what I'm quite interested about hearing about is, like when you work in these big tech organizations, how much of the product vision is kind of contained within the particular area you're looking at? So in your case, uh, geo. Yeah, and how how do you align that or do you align that with Google's wider strategy, if it has one? I would think,
3: like, I mean, Google's hitting what, you might know this number as well. It's like, including contractors and the odd consultant here and there, it's about 100,000 people. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know any organization of a hundred thousand that has an org-wide strategy that you could like internalize when you're in like frontline product teams. Yeah. So, the kind of design we end up doing is pretty autonomous. Like we make the decisions ourselves. It does fit into a larger strategy, but that happens a lot more organically. And I think the way that Google is organized is very organic, it it's is. sometimes scrappy um, and painful and. You can have teams building parallel things, and I remember during my interview, one of the one of the designers who took me to lunch said, the surprise that he had when he joined was finding out so many launches that the company he worked for were making that were really impressive and impactful. He would find out in the press rather than internal, just yeah. because it's so big and there's so many layers. It's you can so find it if you look for it.
1: It but, exists, but <laughs>
3: you need to know who's looking for it. So yeah. it's it's literally like you you pull this string and it just keeps unraveling and unraveling and after a while you just have to go these are my blinkers that I'm going to put on my blinders and this is the focus I have these are the commitments we're going to make for this quarter or this year or this problem and you just have to kind of stay within that for a while otherwise you'll go insane (laughs) you you (laughs) will you'll just lose it you can't
0: you can't really have that vision and I think that behavior applies to any any other team yeah I think I was told once at Google, you have a bunch of very smart people coming up with potentially the same ideas but different ways of executing them and only the ones that actually get scalable yeah. are the ones that actually go live but it's it's just like a bunch of people doing the same thing
3: yeah and I think <laughs> I think that's that's a trait that a lot of tech companies have but Google does it just at a different level or a different way is it's naturally competitive. And the idea is to always find something that scales. So Mm -hmm. we rarely solve problems for, you know, a few thousand people. Even a million people, you would say. Unless those million people are extremely high spending, maybe advertising. I've never worked in ads group, but, you know, the group that I work in, we were talking in tens of millions of users would be a low number or something that we would ramp up from. So you just, it's a different mindset you have to work in.
2: So how, bearing in mind your user base is potentially so large, how do you deal with kind of validating your designs with users? Like, how does the research process work when you're, you know, you're potentially looking at a sample of, you know, maybe eight or ten people in a lab, um, and then it's got to roll out to millions from millions of different countries? And I mean, the, the good news is we have amazing researchers you can partner with. The bad news
3: is most teams are under-resourced. <laughs> to actually have dedicated researchers. So I really enjoy doing research and setting up like lab studies and even just running rolling lab formats. So there was something we did recently with search and the maps team that demanded us to do basically bi-weekly studies where we would have to be lean and rather than try and get, um, try and get research to be generative, we would use it as a way or a proxy for are we heading in the right direction so when we go and run experiments in the wild, we can actually measure the right thing, get traction in the right place and either have impact, make money, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So I think it it really depends on what you're trying to learn Mm
1: -hmm. and
3: how fast you need to move. Some things do go out the door without any testing testing because Mm -hmm. at that scale you can design experiments that give you absolute numbers and absolute success and failures. And then you have very deep discussions around whether you will agree on that. If that's a strategy you want to keep playing out, how does it, you know, butt up against something else that's running in parallel that might be competing against it. It's normally a lot of smaller pieces moving a lot faster than one big ship. And it's especially the research organisation or the research effort here is normally around making sure that we land the right things. We talk a lot about shipping and landing. So shipping something, and there's an engineering manager we used to work with who talks about the, it wasn't the Mars rover, it was some um, NASA and EU collaboration Mm -hmm. where they sent something to Mars and it launched perfectly, it got to Mars perfectly, it entered the atmosphere at an okay speed, but because of differences in collaboration rather than it slowing down and landing it smashed into the surface of the planet. But by the measure of success, the launch team did a great job. The coordination team did a great job. And if they weren't holding themselves accountable for how it landed, then they would think they did something brilliant. And in terms of product, we have to think about landings rather than launches. So we will launch (coughs) a lot of things, but a landing means problem solved, you know, business model created or a pivot made. And we look at different measures. That's why we have like the heart framework that we use for like, um, it's more of a user centric measure of success, mm-hmm. but it talks a lot about like task success and even how you're actually going to monetize this thing and what retention looks like. So it's, it's all the conversations that product managers and engineering managers and like senior executive leadership is talking about, but it gives you a framework to kickstart your projects and frame them properly mm-hmm. that you don't just have a hunch experiment with it, launch it in the wild, and then kind of like dust your hands of it and go, well, shit, let's see if it works, because someone will tell you if it doesn't.
0: Yeah. I mean, the um, the culture of, um, not necessarily testing, but like this is a culture that I can see in the platform, saying which I'm from, um, is having like alphas and betas oh, yeah. and like lots of that stuff. So can you talk about a little bit, like, do you actually do that in the product side and how that's at that work and how that get, gives you some certain certainty that things are going to work?
3: I think that sometimes people will call things beta. Beta is just a, some often friendly product terms, a way of you saying it's not good enough yet and we don't want to officially launch it, so we'll just <laughs> yeah. put a beta tag on it. Um, we'll do incremental increases in experiments. So, like, you'll ramp something up. Five percent is a good starting point. Because across the volume of users, we have 5% you can measure impact, positive or negative, whether you're breaking something, whether it's technically viable, all that stuff. And then you'll normally just increase up, so 5%, 15, 25, 50, and 100. And that just seems like a natural way of doing things without taking a huge risk because you can ramp things down. The side effect of that is it becomes a bit of a proxy that people can use or a backdoor into making change. So we're like, oh, it's just an experiment. I'll frame this as just something I want to test. And because it comes back with some okay numbers, they'll say, well, we're going to increase it. And then before you know it, it's just an incumbent part of the experience that your team <laughs> has to support, which might not have been the right thing to do in the first yeah. place.
2: Yeah, I've seen that in a lot of projects where you would kind of take this alpha beta approach, but actually it's just an excuse to sort of release whatever you feel like, kind of reverse justify it. And then, yes, if the numbers please your stakeholders, basically, as opposed to designing the right thing. Totally. And I I think there's
3: there's a very fine line between using it as a measure of these are things in a bucket that we don't know yet, or we're not going to be able to measure through Mm. like rapid iteration or different design methodologies or um, even just paper prototyping. The difference between that and I want to defer all of the responsibility to the numbers that come back, and if they're successful, then I'm agnostic to whatever the experience is. I think that's kind of lazy. Mm. But we've all been part of it. Or you just because resources are finite, time is finite.
0: Yeah, yeah. Does it? Is it any difference? I mean, did you see? Have you seen a difference between how design? Is uh, tackled in between Google and Twitter as well as Envision. What's the differences think, between the three?
3: I think um, maybe I'll start with you. Twitter. was It was a smaller team, and they'd gone through some different organizing principles. So I think originally they were centralized, and then they were federated, and then they'd come back into like a central space and had a bit of like federated work. Because I was outside of the main office and spending way too much time on a plane, I just embedded myself in the teams that I was working in. So that works a whole lot better when you're trying to design a culture, a way of working, a way of thinking, a way of empathizing and a way of shipping product mm-hmm. for a very small set of people, so talking like 20, 30 people. Google works in a similar way, but because you are at a totally different scale. Mm. And Twitter, I mean, I think when I was at Twitter we had about 300 million monthly users. There's products in Google that people have never heard of that have that many users. So in terms of the design process or how design works, you work in a much more horizontal way Mm -hmm. at Google. You will work very much closely with your team, but then it'll be about how you can scale the solutions that you make, how you can pull in other people or resources. There's product teams I've seen that just build on other things that people have made and they do it in a unique way that solves a particular problem. Or it builds a business and that's a great way of working it's mm-hmm. lean um i think both of them are very different to the way that envision worked i mean envision is a design company yeah whereas google and twitter were a consum- mostly consumer-facing tech company there's a lot of enterprise stuff in there particularly at google but envision is about changing the way people work
1: mm-hmm.
3: and basically trying to i don't mean this in a bad way they're trying to by an industry to become the OS for design. They'll talk about that. they say, we want to be the operating system for product design. And I think they're trying to do that. And when you're a designer inside Envision, you're royalty. When I joined, there was, I think, 10 of us, mm-hmm. 10 product designers in a company of about four or 500. I think they are about 700 now. And everyone knew who you were. You had constant access to Clark, the CEO. You could ping him at any time of the day and he would get back to you. He would call you to share ideas. Like, you were because you were at inside that company the peak of the target market they were going after your opinion and voice counted and you were shaping the product that was supposed to drive some of those initiatives so it was very rare but in this in the same way there's there's i don't want to call them drawbacks but there's the same realities of any big company or any company trying to scale that fast they had a direction they were going in before you join and you align to that and then you try and either shape it or give it form, um, pivot it where you can, block things where you don't think they're viable or that they're unrealistic, but you're still an employee in a team. You buy into that mission. Mm. Um, but their mission was just one that's just culturally really close to your career.
0: Yeah, of course. Like I they what I really like about Envision is that they went beyond the product and created yeah. a whole community about it. Like their content strategy is amazing. Like I remember going to that movie or something that they did and everyone yeah and everyone wanted to be on it like it was it was amazing how had they targeted like a niche you know um and i guess like it is interesting when when companies try to do that like go beyond a product and try and sell a product Mm -hmm. actually build a whole service around it Mm. we kind of leads into the next question which is i know you're very passionate about service design and um so I want to just passionate to, as someone can be. Yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, we've heard t- talked about service design in the past. Um, so, what how do you define service design? It's one of the, those things that I don't know. I know what it means, and I know um, I've actually used that term in the past mm. several times, and perhaps I've used some of the tools that service design yeah. kind of provides. But what is your definition of service design?
3: I think It's it purely it's a methodology, in the mm. same way that visual design is a methodology that. Um, experienced design as a methodology, you'll find graphs that are concentric circles that are often more like a dispute over who owns who.
1: (laughs) It's true. Um,
3: And I I just don't really agree with that. You, You end up with some people, not all, but some people saying that, well, because I am X designer, therefore I create something that you operate in. So I've seen examples before where a service designer will say, I think holistically and you are more tactical, therefore I will tell you what to do or I will set up the framework for you to do your work in. I think a lot of people assign their value to a specific methodology or a discipline. The same way that some fantastic art directors that I've met will say I'm only a visual designer and by doing that they limit the capability or the impact they can have. I think in the same way a methodology like service design, which is very high level and it's end-to-end and it's kind of multifaceted and there's different lenses you can look at through. It is a fantastic blueprint for how you build products or companies or services, but you need to be in the weeds and it's about what I was talking about before, that different altitude. If you had a high altitude, that would be something I would use a service design methodology for, mm. whereas if I was thinking about interaction design, you would be in the weeds on a particular moment in a journey and understanding what scenarios you're actually going to test your experience against. Mm-hmm. So I love it as a technique, as a tactic, as a way of framing a project, particularly when you're inventing or pivoting. Mm -hmm. Um, But as something that is greater than any other methodology, Mm -hmm. I call bullshit Exactly,
0: it's it's, all bullshit.
2: I kind of see it as something that UX has kind of naturally progressed to as they get more senior just because they build up that skill set to start engaging with more senior stakeholders at a bit more of a strategic level. So they're just doing design, but they're speaking and influencing the way that the company is delivering that design as well. So that's kind of how I see it.
0: But I, I disagree. Like I remember when um, in one of my previous jobs, um, there was this service design guy who like, kept saying that UXs like traditional UXs or experienced designers or whatever you want to call them. They just basically like think about a touch point and then just like have a very narrow view of the experience. And then we, service designers, see the whole picture. And that is not true. Like you can't just say that because in every uh, experience and UX role I've done in the past, you do look at the entirety of the experience. You see how that is gonna influence the whole experience. It's not just a touch point. And and that's what it annoys me about. These people who call themselves service designers, because it, I, I could totally agree with you, is a methodology. It's not like, you know, I am a service designer I'm more strategic than you because you're a UXer. Um, as yeah. a
3: method that people use to like one up themselves, then you can go to hell. I'm not interested in working <laughs> with people like that. But in the same way that people will be really dogmatic about certain visual design techniques or ways of working, when they're not appropriate to the environment they're in, and to your point before around designers graduating into these higher levels of thinking, I think we're seeing more and more of that strategic level consulting because design is becoming a tool that businesses are using for competitive advantage, for speed, as a defense mechanism. It's It has got into the C-suite and it's maturing and people need strategic tools to articulate design more than just a mock-up. And a mock-up can be part of a great story that you're telling, a way of building empathy, a way of giving context. But when it comes to one discipline over another, I just think it's bullshit. It's, it's, too, it's you're not agnostic enough, whereas designers should be agnostic and you should mm-hmm. have toolkits and you should have ways of working that are flexible and fluid, particularly if you're in agency or consulting or even something big like Google where I could be placed on a team next week and have to completely change the way I work and I would be effective in this team, and awful in another if I stuck to one or two key disciplines yeah. and didn't adapt.
0: That is a very good point. This is how you adapt to to every day there is a new methodology, a new framework, a new book There's some mm. more and I buy them all. Uh, yeah, I buy them all too. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of books. And I read, But then um, it's what it just used you just, use, you just use tools that you have available. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, changing the subject a little bit, um, I know that you work with um, a lot of um, startups, right? Mm-hmm. Do you you do um, you work with Google for startups, and you see well, obviously, I imagine that you go and work with them, and from a design perspective. So, what are you? What do you? What do you think are the biggest um, challenges as well as opportunities uh, for design in the startup world?
3: I think that particularly the it was like Google for startups, which is what the new name for campus, which is the outreach program that sits under Google for entrepreneurs. Thank God they rebranded it. Um, my involvement there was working with a lot of their, um, they call them, I think they have like six month rolling programs that are themed largely at the moment around machine learning and startups that are trying to build or use machine learning or artificial intelligence to make products or to Mm -hmm. do something different. Um, And very specifically, two startups that I worked with there were, one was in the real estate space Mm -hmm. and not in the boring sense. They were in the real estate space and they were trying to build a model that mapped, and I hope I'm not giving away too much, that basically would learn where trends were happening and where prices were going to go. Mm -hmm. And they backdated their model and applied it to data that they found in the 80s and it was right. So they could predict a volume of changes across different markets. Now, that's amazing tech, but from a design and product perspective, they don't have a use case yet. The only one they came up with was, well, we can approach a bank and build it into a lending tool that gives them, I don't know, better interest rates. It can tell them about risk, which is interesting. That's a nice piece of tech. The problem is the first bank they showed it to said, we'll buy it off you for a very small amount of money, but you can never sell it to anyone else. And that's not a product. Mm -hmm. That's something that you just built for a client and you sold it to them and you've given up an enormous opportunity. So my advice to them or like the role that I would play with them is finding the right use case to apply their tech to or define what their requirements for product market fit were. So like the two key, and I can't remember his name, but he's a a great kind of measure of whether he invests, he's venture capitalists, whether he invests. He says you should have absolute product market fit and traction to prove it and you should have um, defendable tech Mm -hmm. or IP that no one else has. These people had IP that no one else had not that we'd heard of and they'd done obviously months of research before while they were building this model but what they didn't have was product market fit. They had a bunch of different ideas Mm -hmm. but the role that we played in that advice was we're going to use design to work with prospective users across a bunch of spectrums and find where you could actually apply this tech and turn it into something, turn it into a product. Could it be a loan product that helps people in um, low-income areas buy because you can assess the risk of their neighbourhood is less than a bank says it is? Mm -hmm. So why can't you raise a billion-dollar fund that would then bridge the gap between what a bank is about to give you what a house costs because we know that we can earn it back based on the predictions we get in a machine learning model. Like, that's a use case you can put something behind. Yeah. Yeah. so that's the kind of mentoring that at like advisory capacity we do a lot with startups. And then there's just the normal ones, like how do you get from zero to one? How do you understand your users? How should you start framing your problems and telling your stories better so you can internalize a strategy and actually make it actionable rather than just we've built this great thing, which Google's great at as well, right? It's, it builds all this amazing tech and think, well, isn't this impressive and it's fantastic, and then you go, okay, now we have to ship it to the wild and <laughs> it either doesn't fit or it's not as usable as it could be or it doesn't resonate, doesn't have longevity, doesn't have a plan. That's the kind of advising I like to do.
2: And do you find that something that's missing a lot in startups? Are they just coming up with loads of ideas and then they'll sort of figure out what it's for later? Is that one of the main kind of issues they're facing, do you think? I think, I think there's a spectrum. I think at either end of it, there's definitely, that's definitely one. The other one is they're going,
3: we're going to operate in this space and then they never build anything. They they have no certainty or they have have no uh, um, barometer for what people care about or no proxy for, you know, we think our market is about this big. We think the problem is like this and we're going to experiment. A lot of people either don't know how to get started or they get started and burn through a shit ton of seed money, never actually build anything and then use that credibility to go get the next round of funding. I'm more interested in people who have the traction or have a piece of tech that that is applicable. So it's Mm -hmm. like sometimes you have very difficult conversations with people to say you might not have a use case, you might not have a market, and that's an awful thing to hear if that's your, not your life's work, but it could be your life's work. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's at times difficult to help them visualise what their transformation needs to be, but when you do and they're excited about it, my measure of success in that is normally they'll email me a couple of days or a week later and say, "How can we hire a designer? Or how can we how can we use this way of working or this way of thinking mm. to actually build a vision for our product or build a vision for our team or tell our story better so we can raise another million dollars and build a team around it." That's mm-hmm. that's the success that I'm interested in.
0: That's really cool. That's really good work as well because um, you know you 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 applying design to products and even the commercialization element of it, right? Mm. So you're applying and making sure that they create a product that is viable yeah. and you know, commercially viable because a yeah. lot of startups will just basically just build something and see yeah. how they go. So
3: And sometimes people's mission is just, we're going to build this and we're going to sell it to this company. And you yeah. go, great, that's a project. Yeah. I mean, it's framed as a startup, but that's a project. That's a pitch. And if you miss that target, what the hell are you going to do? Yeah. So those expectations and setting them is important yeah
0: All right so um, what do you think then designers because you've been talking about artificial intelligence talking about design applied to business like designers having a seat on the table um, what do you think uh, what do you think are the things that designers should be focusing on in the next five years I
3: don't know I would I think about this I think we're always going to be solving problems in a similar way I think some of those and I I fucking hate that they're called soft skills but the, the <laughs> ability to empathize and understand and articulate what people's concerns are and reframe them properly is something that you can never ever stop focusing on um i actually probably do less design traditional design work compared to my previous parts of my career now that i do at google but i feel like i have much more impact mm-hmm. and impact in that i can reframe and lead leadership or i can um maybe reframe a problem that an entire team is having. But when it comes to tooling, even though I come from InVision, I think they do an amazing job, I don't think tooling is something that people need to double down on. Your ability to sit in a room and articulate why your discipline is important and how it's going to have impact is the Mm -hmm. only measure of whether you're growing as a designer or not. I like what is it, Doug Powell? I may have said his name wrong. He was the or still is the head of design at IBM. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he did when he walked into that job was the first thing he said he did in a promotional video was um, (laughs) he said IBM only cares about market outcomes. Mm -hmm. They don't care about artefacts or um, internal ways of working or how we reach a particular solution. It's around how much impact we can have in the wild. And by impact in the wild, that means money on the table, systems sold, licences sold, they're like, getting closer to what your definition of success is, whether you're in an agency and you're jumping between clients every, God bit every couple of weeks, like, like ideally every few months or maybe every year or two, um, understanding what the job is actually at hand and how can design accelerate that, make it um, clearer to articulate what success looks like, what an experience looks like and a roadmap to get there. And you'll be you know, laughing all the way to the bank,
2: sometimes literally. cool so do promo videos is what we're saying (laughs) no don't go through yeah don't just do
3: series a funding rounds promo videos and then walk (laughs) away although there's a business in that i'm
2: sure (laughs) okay carla before we wrap up do you want to ask your favorite final questions to to, uh, brendan
0: yeah so i normally ask everyone to either recommend a podcast or a book or a person to follow, yep. or the three of them, if you can.
3: Okay, I think. Um, okay, what have I done in the last week? I've started doing more podcasts because I walk to work, and reading makes me fall asleep, so I read about half a page a night. Um, uh, podcast, I think I'm going to have to say my old colleagues at Envision that do Design Better. Um, yeah, good. Eli Woolery is fantastic. Aaron Walter is great, and there's two really good ones. One around um, making time from Jake Knapp which is a great episode, and there's another one by a venture capitalist who mainly talks about what he looks for in people he funds. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's another podcast from one of – I think he's still VP of Europe more on the sales side at Twitter um, called – wherever my phone is, I'm going to find it – it's by Bruce Daisley, and it's about working and happiness at work. He actually just got a book deal about it. It is called... I'm still looking it
0: Happiness at work. Is that achievable?
3: Well, he's, he's talking <laughs> about the idea of... And he talks to everyone. It's called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And he said the idea that, like, the fun of work is missing. And so he talks to everyone. He talks to... One of his latest ones was, like, you know, the marketing guru, Seth Godin, but he talks to authors and academics around, like, what it means to be happy at work and how people find purpose. Um, not in a hippie sense, but, like, what action... Why do people get along? And, like, why, why is... Um, you know, these products and tools that we use for work that have the definition of infinity built into them, like emails never end. Mm-hmm. It looks, but like, there's everything from hacks to thinking about how, like, even football teams work with each other and how they get to trust each other. That is super interesting. I think that's they like the main two that are kind of dip in and out of, and the rest of it's just pure guff and entertainment shit, <laughs> like this podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anything passive, I like. It, I end up buying way too many books. There's actually one I'm really looking forward to that like pre-funded by Joe, I want to say his last name's like Toscano. He wrote a book called Automating Humanity and it's about um, what artificial intelligence will likely do to us and to work. He used to work at Google for an agency ages ago. I think I got chatting to him on Twitter and then did like a Kickstarter of his book. But it is interesting. It's about what happens when automation takes over. Like what does our role become? What does... A good day look like what does regular work look like We're like in our field we'll end up being on the forefront of that but what is what is it the long tail of what we create how do we be more concerned about it
0: good yeah. great oh well, do you do you want to add something else chris or
2: uh no i think we're done so all that remains to say is thank you very much for talking to us and hopefully we'll have you on again soon.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. You're I'm welcome. really, really happy you're here today. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Search and subscribe to Design Untangled
2: using your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Follow us on the web at designuntangled.co.uk or on Twitter at designuntangled. Become a better designer with online mentoring at uxmentor.me.